I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this evening. We're picking up where we left off. It's been a few weeks, but we were in our series on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And last time we were together, we were in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we were in chapter 12. And I told you, at that time, we're going to do an overview, and we'll come back later and look at more of the specifics. And tonight is that message. We're going to look at more of the specifics. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is a chapter that deals with spiritual gifts. And as we come to it, I want you to notice immediately at the outset that there is a word, it's actually the fourth word in some of your translations, that's in italics. And if you have a Bible that that word is in italics, that is a service to you. If you have a translation that it is not in italics, I know the King James has it in italics, the NASB has this word in italics, the ESV does not have it in italics, which I was surprised to find out. But it's in the italics there, and there's a reason for it. It says, now concerning spiritual, and the word that's in italics is the word gifts. Now you may know why that's in italics. And if you don't, let me help you out. And as a student of God's word, the word is in italics because it is supplied by the translators as a help to us to read the passage. But the word gifts is not in the original languages. You won't find that word there. In fact, you could maybe read it to say now concerning spiritual things. However, other texts where the word gifts comes through, the Greek word charisma, is certainly lending itself towards this idea that gifts or charisma is exactly what Paul had in mind as he writes concerning these spiritual things, these spiritual gifts. And you may note that the word gifts is the word charisma from which you often hear the phrase charismatic, charismatic. And that brings us to the subject this evening. I want us to address this evening by starting with a question. Why are we not a charismatic church? Now, there are certain things we do in this church, and there are certain things we do not do in this church. We do not claim that there are prophets in this church. You may have noticed that. We do not claim that there are apostles in this church. We do not speak in tongues in the Sunday services or in any of the Bible studies that are associated with this church. We do not have healing services. Like you can come on Tuesday night. If you have a sickness, we'll heal you on Tuesday night or Sunday night or whatever day. We just we don't have healing services. We do not have words of knowledge or special revelation that we can give to you beyond the written word of God. Now, as we go any further, what a difference it would be if we had all of those. Can you think about it? If I had those things, if I could promise you healings and miraculous gifts and special revelation, and I could promise you if you came to this church, all of those things were to happen and would happen, would it not draw a bigger crowd? I would imagine that it probably would. Would it not draw a great signs and wonders in our community? If somehow we were uh, the healing church in town, it would certainly draw some eyeballs in our direction. And then we have to ask our question, if that's true, if we pray for revival in these times and we are seeking out gifts in this church, and we should be, why not open ourselves up to more than just the limited sphere of gifts or spiritual gifts? Why not open ourselves up as a church to, more broadly speaking, charismatic gifts? Well, the fact is that if we take away three chapters from the Bible, the charismatics or charismatic churches, would have no scriptural foundation upon which to form any of their basis for practicing emotionalism. 
And those chapters are 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. They are the only chapters that they can use to make their case about charismatic teaching. And because those are their only chapters that they can use to base their beliefs, because there are churches that do these things, I think it'd be wise for us to carefully look at those texts from the lens of Scripture and understand exactly what they are saying. Now, before we go any further, and by way of introduction, and I need to set the table before we get into it, you might say, well, it can't only be 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. If we're talking about spiritual gifts, Pastor Caleb, you missed one. You have to use Acts chapter 2. Because Acts chapter 2, they're speaking in tongues, and surely that is charismatic gifts. And for that, I'd say, let's study that text out. And then you'll understand why I say only the 1 Corinthians passages are really worth discussing. In Acts 2, verse 4, it says, They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and, to speak, and, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, before we go any further, it doesn't say unknown tongues, does it? It says other tongues. And notice the next two verses in Acts 2. I'll put them on the screen, but you can certainly look that in your own passages in your lap there. Acts 2, verse 5, it says, There were dwelling Jerusalem, Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. And when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. So what was the gift of tongues in Acts 2? Every man heard men speak the gospel in their own language. This was an earthly, discernible tongue that was very evident. It's right there in the text. In fact, Acts 2, verses 7 and 8, it goes a little bit further. It says, And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one another, Behold, are not all of these Galileans, these men, Peter and the apostles that are preaching, are they not Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? This is not angelic babble that's going on in Acts 2 at all. This is very evidently a tongue, or really the word tongue that's being translated here is a synonym for language. This is the gift, we say the gift of tongues, but more specifically we're saying this is the gift of languages. Sometimes we pick up the mystical idea when we read the word tongues, and we think tongues, you know, just babble and things. That's clearly not what's going on. This is miraculous. They did not formerly know the language, now they are speaking and it is being heard in their language. You can process it, if you will, that Peter is speaking in a language that he understands, and you're standing next to a guy who's speaking one language or understands in one language, and you understand in this language, and this other person understands in a different language, and Peter is speaking, and everybody hears it in their language at the same time. That's the miraculous gift that is going on in this text. It wasn't that there was babble going on in Acts 2. In Acts 2, they had a dramatic, sudden ability to speak in another man's language without having studied it. In fact, it goes further, Acts 2.11. Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. You can't use Acts 2 to support speaking babble or angelic language. It just doesn't talk about that. Note again, it says our tongues, not some strange tongues. This was an earthly language. I'll bring that all back to 1 Corinthians then. Because the charismatics that practice this in this church, or in their churches, are confined to 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, to bolster up their teaching on gifts of the apostles to be exercised in the church today. These are their only texts that they can use. They don't have any other text to use to support their claims. 
But as we look at these three chapters, we have to say that this is quite a shaky foundation to build religious experience or movements or your church upon. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14 are fearful chapters to study. They really, really are. These are not chapters where Paul encourages the Corinthians in what they are doing. These are not like a big Paul's going to come behind them and say, good job, Corinthians, really encourage what you're doing. Keep on keeping on. He has other passages that certainly do that. Not here. Here, these are Paul's rebuke to the Corinthians for what they are doing. In fact, in a moment, if you want to go back to chapter 11, you'll see exactly what we're talking about. I only call this to your attention because we're in communion this Sunday, and we often read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when it comes to communion. And Paul talks about how, for this cause, there are those that are taking communion unworthily, and there are many in your congregation that are sick, and some die. Boy, that's a real encouraging way to start a service. Paul is rebuking them in these passages, really in this entire book. So in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, these are not encouragements, these are corrections. These are the Apostle Paul's final words on how to behave yourself in the house of God. And these three chapters correct a church that was in confusion. Just to highlight a few of the verses. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40. Let all things be done decently and in order. Why would he have to say that? Because they weren't being done decently and in order. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31. But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I show unto you a more excellent way. In other words, the way that you are going is not good. I want to show you a better way. So we see Paul saying, What are you doing out of this place? There is a better way. And notice how 1 Corinthians 14, verse 4 says. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4, it says, and there's another word in italics, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue. And again, the word unknown was supplied by the translators for our aid. You won't find it in the originals. There were those speaking in a known human language that was previously unknown to them. And what was the benefit of it? Verse 4, He that speaketh in a language formerly unknown to him edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. There was no benefit, as Paul is saying. There's no benefit if a guy stood up and began to speak in Mandarin Chinese if no one in the audience spoke Mandarin Chinese. That's what he's saying. That wouldn't, that wouldn't benefit anybody. And what he would be doing is kind of a parlor trick or, or a circus trick. It's not a help. It's not a benefit. So what Paul has clearly done is Paul has played down these gifts, has he not? He's played them down, whereas the charismatic church seeks to build them up. And this is Paul's whole treatise. And in these three chapters, he is trying to get these people to see that the real emphasis ought to be on the building up of the church. So there was a serious problem in the ministry of Corinth. There were a lot of hoopla, there was a lot of confusion, and the gifts were wrongly being used. They were being used out of turn, they were being used out of place, they were being used by some who wanted to promote themselves, and that's going to be my thesis tonight. These gifts were being abused. That was the great overwhelming issue to which Paul writes to the Corinth as he writes these chapters. They were abusing these gifts. This is going to be an overarching message. We're going to go up in the air like an eagle and look down on this church of Corinth 
and try to see exactly what it is, and there's a lot to kind of wrap our arms around, that Paul is trying to answer when it comes to charismatic teaching. And it's confusing for us because we live in an age that has confused this matter greatly. And for that reason, I know it's been a few weeks, so I hope you remember a little bit, at least, of what we've already talked about, but they are recorded, and I encourage you to go back and listen to them. First of all, what Paul is saying, and what we can say is this, charismatic teaching elevates status above biblical truth. The gifts were being used by a few men to exalt themselves in Corinth. And to substantiate this, we go to 2 Corinthians first. I would be good, very good thing if we read both of these books, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, in one sitting at one time. And what you will see is that Paul is dealing with the enemies of the gospel. And, and I know it's first and second, but there is both Corinthians, so it's good for us to kind of view them in one segment. What's going on is they were claiming to be apostles, some of them in the Corinth church were claiming to be apostles. More than that, they were claiming to be, we could call them super apostles or super duper apostles. And so he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, for I supposed... I was not a wit behind the very chiefest apostle. Paul is writing this. And then you'll notice there was a thread of leadership in this church in verse 13 of chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. For such are apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. So Paul is painting these men that have woven themselves into the church as enemies of the church truth, and he is saying they were enemies of the truth, they were enemies to the church, and they were enemies, he says, even to himself, the apostle Paul. And now you notice in verse 4, these men were working very subtly. They did not come painting in shades of black and white, they come painting with gray, and that's always confusing. Anytime anybody addresses an issue and they make it more of a gray than a black and white, especially if the Bible makes it black and white, that becomes very confusing. And they made things so gray that there almost is so much confusion in the church, nobody knows what is right and what is wrong anymore at times. And so he says in 1 Corinthians 4, 11, verse 4, or 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4, for if he that cometh preaches another Jesus, that's the problem. The word another refers to a very similar kind, but not the same. It sounds the same, it looks the same, it might even use some of the similar language, but it's not Jesus. He says in verse 4, whom we have not preached, or if we receive another spirit, that's the same word, which you have not received, or another gospel, same word, which you have not accepted. And so these pseudo-apostles who call themselves super-apostles, they are saying we're the chief apostles, that's what they're claiming. We're better even than Paul, we're better than any of the other ones that came before us. They are puffing themselves up, and they're preaching, Paul says, another Jesus, they're preaching another spirit, they're preaching another gospel. And this is a tremendous attack against the Corinth church, as it would be in any age. Someone comes into your church and they're saying, we're better than anybody else. And by the way, people are following them, so they must have had some giftedness. But they're preaching something different and not the true gospel. It would obviously threaten to close the church. And so Paul says, this is how they're really drawing a crowd. And that's all introduction to what I'll show you on the screen now. Truly, Paul says, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. You guys have seen what's going on. Now go back to chapter 10. 
of 2 Corinthians. Stay in 2 Corinthians chapter. And in 2 Corinthians, you'll see again that these people are commending themselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, for we dare not, Paul says, make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. What's going on? Let me just kind of give you a thumbnail. These men are parading into the church using some kind of means to to kind of flash themselves forward in some kind of potentially miraculous way. They would at least claim that it is. And they are comparing themselves among themselves, even amongst and different than Paul. Like, Paul did that, but look at what we're doing. And Paul's saying, this is not wise. there's There's an elevation here that's just not wise. And this all ties in to what Paul has just dealt with in 1 Corinthians. So go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And notice in 1 Corinthians 12 the warning that Paul gives. In light of the confusion that's now coming into the church that he'll address later in 2 Corinthians, notice the warning in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3. I give you, Paul says, to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God called Jesus accursed. In the same chapter that deals with gifts, you have this immediate warning. Here's the immediate warning. Be warned about men coming who do not have the Spirit, but claim to have the Spirit. That's what you need to be warned about. If you're going to come to church, you need to be careful. There are going to be those who will parade themselves in as if they have the Holy Spirit, but they don't have the Holy Spirit. You see what the warning is? These men claim to have gifts, but they're not the Holy Ghost. They are preaching another Jesus. They are presenting another gospel. Do you remember the words of our Lord, by the way? There are many who will say to me in the last day, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out devils in your name? In your name, have we not done wonderful works? It would seem that the answer is they've done these things, but it's not been from Christ because Christ has said, depart from me, I never knew you. Is it possible that there would be workers of deception that would actually do amazing things, but that doesn't mean it's from God? Paul is saying that is absolutely possible. This is what happened in Corinth. By the way, this is what is still happening today. And they take these three chapters, chapter 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians, to bolster their claim to the New Testament apostolic gifts to be their portion today. And they would say that those who are not seeking these gifts actively are backslidden, they'll say. They're just not walking with the Spirit. Or they'd go as far as to say that if you are not seeking after these gifts, you are inferior and they are superior. They would even go so far as to say that if you are not seeking those gifts or you're not practicing those gifts, you don't have, and this is their wording, you don't have the full gospel. Paul's saying it sounds a lot like the gospel, but it's another gospel that they are parading. It's no wonder that out of this teaching, charismatics have come forth and brought forth their fraudulent leaders, which are more radical movements of the Pentecostals, And many have brought untold disgrace to the name of the Lord right out from this line of thinking. You can name them. Jimmy Swaggart, Jim Baker, 
Rodney Howard Brown, and the list goes on. Here are those who parade themselves as if they are miracle workers. They're doing something amazing, but they bring great, eventually, disgrace to the name of Jesus Christ. And the question we must ask is, what was Paul's reaction to those men who claimed to be super apostles? What was Paul's reaction? Because Paul's reaction ought to be our reaction. What did Paul say? Did Paul try to outwit these false teachers? By the way, I think he probably could have. In pre-conversion, he sat under Gamaliel. I think he could have outwit them in the debate. Maybe he out-miracled them. (laughs) And again, I think Paul, in some ways, could have done all of these things. Did Did he try to get into some ministry competition with size? What did Paul do? Come back to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. Here's what Paul do, or did, rather. If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern my infirmities. Paul gloried in his weakness. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. He said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, would I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God did not give him a special gift to heal Paul's own infirmity. And Paul is saying, this is the kind of person, God is more glorified using weak men than super men. In fact, as one person once asked, are you weak enough for God to use you? When we think we are strong, we are weak. And this is the whole issue I have with charismatic teaching. Because they are parading before people to say, you need this super strength. You need this super spirituality. In many ways, I would argue it's a new Gnosticism. It's this idea that there's this secret code that's now they've unlocked and you need it. And you need this blessing, and and you need this pastor to touch your forehead, and somehow that's going to change your life. And that is, friend, not the gospel. The gospel seeks to put the last first, and the first will be last. Paul says, there are weakness, through my weakness, these men are in the the Corinthian church are parading their gifts, and, and that's the problem with charismatic teaching. They have elevated status in the church above biblical truth. All of a sudden, it's all about some of the men I just mentioned. It's all surrounded by heavy personality. Number two, charismatic teaching elevates personal experience above church unity. That's my other issue with charismatic teaching. It elevates personal experience above church unity. The gifts were being used in a way that divided the body rather than uniting it. Again, this is Paul's whole argument, his whole thesis in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. There were some in the church saying they had a gift and were looking down their noses at people, other people in the church who did not have a gift. And they were basically saying, if you were a Christian like me, you would do what I'm doing. You don't have the baptism of the Spirit like me. And so there was disunity in the church. And Paul writes and says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, by the way, there are diversities of gifts. But did you notice what Paul emphasizes? But there's the same Spirit. There are differences of administration, 
but there's the same Lord. There are diversities of operations, but there's the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit. This is the great trouble in charismatic circles. Men who claim to have special gifts, and they're elevating in that movement, while others feel inferior. I've said often that there is no more Holy Spirit somehow wrapped up behind this pulpit than there is in your pew. What I'm saying is very opposite of what you would hear in a Pentecostal charismatic church. Because the reverend would say, touch not God's anointed, and he's referring to himself. And there's an elevation of of these men beyond. And Paul is saying that's clearly not. Notice, it's given to every man, chapter 12, 12, verse 7, to profit with all. And Paul then goes on to use the analogy of the body. We are interdependent. You'll notice how important it is that Paul, because he takes the whole chapter to talk about this analogy of the body. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7 through 30, it's all about the unity of the body. It's all working together. We're all necessary. You need one another. Verse 12, to highlight one of those verses, for as the body is one and hath many members, and all members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. The difficulty was in Corinth, they were saying, we have the gifts And we claim superiority to the gifts. Now in the history of the church, down through the centuries, this kind of teaching has come in various forms. There have been those who have preached and proclaimed an experience that elevates them beyond the norm, and it will come by all different names. You'll hear it referred to sometimes as a second blessing. That's what you need. You'll hear it referred to sometimes as the baptism of the Spirit. Or sometimes you hear it referred to as perfect sanctification. And this is a supposed rising to a perfect sanctification where there is no more sin. And you'll see this taught most prominently even in Methodism. You'll see this taught, for example, by John Wesley. The Pentecostal movement has often latched into this second experience Christianity, and it is dividing the church. There are those who claim to have had this experience and there are those who simply do not. But those who have had this blessing are seen somehow as superior. And when the Pentecostal church, the emphasis was and is, and it remains this way, if you want to know that you've been baptized by the Spirit, they'll say you have to speak in tongues. That's the visible manifestation of the baptism of the Spirit. My difficulty is many with this. One, that's clearly not what was going on in Acts 2, as I've already noted. But any Pentecostal, I know, even those who claim they speak in tongues, when it comes to becoming a missionary, he's in trouble. You know why? Because he doesn't have the gift of tongues. He has the gift of make-believe. That's what he has. Let me give you an example. This is Sid Roth, a Pentecostal leader, teaching how you can speak in tongues so you can understand exactly what they believe you should teach. This is how he says you should do it. And if you've never prayed in tongues, if you... Follow my instructions, the anointing is here to do the rest. I can't do it for you, but I can tell you how to pray in supernatural languages. So you start speaking like little baby words and say them as fast as you humanly can when I begin to pray. And the supernatural will become natural as you take a step, Peter, of faith. 
Raise your hands to a holy God and begin to pray in a language you've never been instructed. If you don't move your tongue and speak, no one else will do it. I know you don't know what to say. Make real nonsense syllables up. They're not nonsense. But if the first word's coming out of your spirit, do it faster. I said faster. I said faster. You can do it faster than that. If I had a gun in your ribs, you'd do it faster. Deaf ears are being opened yes. right now yes. in we Jesus' agree. name. Backs are being healed. Wrists, carpal tunnel, you're healed. In the Fingers, name of Jesus. in Jesus' name, right now. In the name of it. Jesus, hallelujah. This is normal. <laughs> Let the whole world be normal. First time probably tongues have been used at Faith Baptist Church of Palm Bay. <laughs> what do you think of that? Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's disunity is what it is. And it's, I'll go further, it's demonic. If you do a study, and I encourage you to do so, and I thought about doing this, but I wanted to stay in the text, but if you do a study of every major cult, you will come to a sobering discovery. Every major cult in the history of the world has factions within it that do exactly that. Every single one, without exception. This is not Christian. This is not unity. This is a promotion of the flesh. The Bible makes it clear that you cannot live one day in the world struggling with the sin and then suddenly, just by opening yourself up in a yoga-type fashion and speaking babble, all of a sudden everything washes away. The Bible teaches progressive sanctification. That's Paul's point. My issue with charismatic teaching is in their efforts to elevate personal experience, it removes church unity because they are teaching instantaneous sanctification, which is not scriptural. Justification is an act of God's free grace, but sanctification is an ongoing work of God in our hearts. Am I being sanctified? If you're a believer, I trust so. Am I sanctified right now? No. There are no superior Christians in this church. We are all struggling sinners. If I was a perfect man serving in the church, would God be given glory in that service? The answer again is no, because it's through the foolishness of preaching that God chooses. Perfection is what holiness movements have often contended for and the ability to live out the struggles of sin. And of course, if God were to use such vessels that were somehow perfect, that vessel would get the glory, not God. But there's a third issue I have as we conclude. Charismatic teaching, number three, elevates gifts above grace. I want to give you a very clear distinction in your mind between gifts and grace, because that distinction will help you, I trust, as you begin to continue to think about this issue. After going through the diversities of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul ends it this way in chapter 31, in verse 31, but covet earnestly the best gifts, 
And yet show I unto you a more excellent way. Now the more excellent way, according to Paul, is grace, not gifts. 1 Corinthians 13 now offers, if you look ahead, you'll see, that's the great love chapter. The word charity or love appears throughout that chapter. And in 1 Corinthians 13, it comes closest to the poetry of Paul's writings. I think it's almost like Paul puts on the poet laureate hat of the New Testament, and he writes this closest work of poetry that Paul will write. And you'll notice how the chapter begins, though, he says, or even though it were possible for me to speak with the tongues of men and angels, and I don't have charity, if I don't have love, what does it amount to? I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. So in this passage, on the heels of the passage on gifts, Paul is saying the most important, better way is love. You can have all of that, all of the cool things in the trinkets of the world, but if you don't have God's grace in your heart, you are useless. Robert Murray McShane said, it is not the great talents that God blesses, it is great likeness to Christ. If there is ever a chapter that ought to stir in our hearts a great desire to be like our Lord, it ought to be the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. It draws us to seek that mighty, wonderful love of Christ. In verse 2, the grace of love is above. The grace of love is above prophecies. It is above mysteries. It is above knowledge. It is above moving mountains by faith. That's how high love is seen. In verse 3 of the same chapter, the graces of love is above self-sacrifice. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, if I don't have love, it means nothing. And then in this chapter, Paul lists six sins that we have to infer were in the lives of these so-called super-apostles. We have to infer that because it's, again, on the heels of chapter 12, which is on the heels of chapter 11, which is on the heels of chapter 10, where Paul has been kind of reaming out these so-called super-apostles. So we have to assume that these six sins that he now lists, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 13, are in the lives, or evident in the lives, of these so-called super-apostles. What are those? He says, well, what they have is envy. You can think of these power-hungry, greedy, grasping super-apostles who were so filled with jealousy in their lives that it ruled their movements and activities. They were filled with pride. Is love is not puffed up, he said. I think these are describing, again, these phony apostles. They are puffed up. It's not filled with inappropriate behavior. It does not behave itself unseemly. These paraders of themselves are marching around saying, we are the men, we have the gifts. It is totally inappropriate. It thinks evil. It doesn't think evil, or rather. I, I skipped one on the thing. I, I, I skipped is easily provoked. You were to say, charismatic, you don't have the grace of God that you ought to have, they would come after you. Charismatics are the most forthright, dogged people around in churches today, in my estimation. There's a tremendous zeal for what they are doing, and it's all wrapped up in the flesh, and to question that risks you being labeled a blasphemer in their camp. They are easily provoked. And then thinks evil, since they are men in their own minds, then everyone else must be wrong. And they rejoice as an iniquity. Think of the charismatic leaders that have come to play in our own country. The names even that I listed. And consider the awful immorality that has arisen from the surface of some of these men. This is their list. 
These are the very things that the love of God will never tolerate, the greatest love. But amongst the charismatic movement, there will be those who have nothing of the grace of God, and we must remember that it is possible to demonstrate giftedness and not be saved. Again, come back to Matthew 7. Many at one day will say, did I not prophesy in your name, and did I not do many wondrous works in your name, and even cast out devils? To which Jesus will reply, I don't even know who you are. If someone comes in here and says, I have the power to heal, does that confirm that he was sent by God? Not necessarily. We are warned over and over not to be blown away but by such signs and wonders. It's obvious from this passage that these super apostles were taking these gifts and they were using them to promote and elevate themselves and they were building a following and it's no different in today's charismatic churches. They say they the way to build the church is by signs and wonders and the result is they do build. I mean, Jim Baker, at one point, before all of the difficulties that took him off the scene, had the largest religious empire in the world, and that's not an exaggeration. And then God took it all away from him. And so Paul launched out into a very big statement, which is to control the church today in verse 8 of chapter 11, or 13, charity, love, never fails. It never becomes invalid. But whether there be prophecies, they will fail. And whether there be tongues, they will cease. And whether there be knowledge, it will vanish away. Paul is saying that these things, these things that you are so enamored with, they are going away. They are temporary. They will cease, I believe, when the New Testament is completed. We looked at that last time we were together. They will cease when the revelation of God is done. We looked at that in full in our last message. But what will never go away is this love. And so, for God's people today, we are not to be endlessly seeking miracles and gifts, but we are to be seeking one thing, love. Tongues is not the sign of being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is being filled with the manifold love of God. If you want to look for a sign, look for that. The love of God always bursts out in action. The love of God is giving. The love of God is doing. The love of God is not grasping and taking. And here is the experience we must seek, and here is the grace of God. Romans 5 says, And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is in us. That's what the Holy Ghost does for you. There is no second experience you need. There is no later baptism from the Holy Ghost. You make you a superior Christian. Romans 8 verse 9 says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, and if so, by the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit, he has none of these things. But if you have the Spirit, you have all of these things. So this gift we should be seeking tonight is love. The grace of the love of God flowing deeply within our hearts because love never fails. Oh, and by the way, now abides faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest is love. This will build up the body of Christ. You may ask, well, why don't we do all these things? Like, why don't we parade into our community and say, look at us. I mean, we've, we've got healings, and we've got tongues, and we've got all this cool stuff, and we can tell you the future. But if, if I did that, if I put on our marquee today, hey, come today and just use that last one and say, and I will tell you the future, and it is 100% true, I guarantee we'll have a bigger crowd next Sunday but it's phony. It's fake. It's not real. But you know what's real? 
You know how to show the, 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 the community of Palm Bay that God is real? It's not by miracles. It's not by signs and wonders. It's not by speakings of prophecy. How can I show my lost neighbor that God is real if I can't do all those things? John says, by this will they know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. My issue with charismatic teaching is it takes away, ultimately, it strips away the point of 1 Corinthians 11, 13, and 14. They build their whole argument on these three chapters, and yet a careful study of these chapters you come to discover is not an elevation of these gifts at all, is it? It's actually a rebuke to a congregation who has forgotten the main thing. And yet there are churches who today will go all through all these things and they will continue to parade these chapters as if this is prerogative for them. This is what God wants them to do. You know what God wants this church to do? Love one another. By this will men know you are my disciples. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for a careful explanation, we trust, of a, of a confusing topic. Not because, Lord, your word is confusing. We dare not say that. Your word is not confusing in this matter but because man has come behind it and uh, perhaps not unlike what we learned this morning, they have erected fences and walls around your holy scripture and in so doing they have hid the real truth. And the real truth is right there in that 13th chapter. Lord, may we understand the truths of scripture even more afresh.